0: there is a warning on this episode it contains accounts of extreme violence and torture that are as usual extremely biblical or depending on your bible apocryphal listener discretion is advised The king fell into a rage and gave orders to have pans and cauldrons heated. These were heated immediately, and he commanded that the tongue of their spokesman be cut out and that they scalp him and cut off his hands and feet, while the rest of the brothers and the mother looked on. When he was utterly helpless, the king ordered them to take him to the fire, still breathing, and fry him in a pan. The smoke from the pan spread widely. But the brothers and their mother encouraged one another to die nobly, saying, The Lord God is watching over us, and in truth has compassion on us, as Moses declared in his song that bore witness against the people to their faces, when he said, and I will have compassion on his servants. That is part of a story and that is told in the seventh chapter of the second book of Maccabees. And that is a book that, I realize, is not in everybody's Bible. The book is considered to be scripture by Roman Catholics and some others, but is not by most Protestants. But, whether you consider it to be scripture or not, this book, and others like it, are important, especially because they provide some very important background information that helps us to understand both the Old and the New Testaments. That is especially true about this particular story. It is the story of seven brothers who are put to death by an evil king named Antiochus Epiphanes. The idea of the resurrection is a complex one in biblical history. In the oldest writings of the Old Testament, the notion that the people might have some hope or expectation of a life after death is pretty much absent. It just doesn't come up. In some later writings, particularly in the Psalms, we do have the notion of a place called Sheol, a place where the dead abide. But life in Sheol, if you can call it that, doesn't seem to be much of an existence. There is no remembrance and no ability to speak. In many ways, Sheol seems to be just a metaphor for being buried in the ground. The idea of a resurrection, of dead bodies being raised up and given new life, only really comes up in the writings of the later prophets. Ezekiel has a vision of it happening, and Daniel refers to it a few times. But the idea only really comes into its own in books like Maccabees, where we see it actually influencing the actions of people in powerful ways. And this particular story, the story of the seven brothers and the evil king, is where we can actually see that happening right before our eyes. So, I would suggest... If you really want to understand the concept of the resurrection that is so central to the New Testament, you absolutely need to know this story. So let's tell it. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 6.21 Seven Tortures for Seven Brothers Shmooney knew very well that the Jews themselves bore a great deal of blame for this present situation. The people were deeply divided and it had caused no end of trouble. Ever since the long ago days of Alexander, whom the Greeks called Great, the Greeks had ruled over the land of Judea with relatively few issues the Jews had been allowed to maintain their customs and the exclusive worship of their God. The Greek kings, at first ruling from Egypt and more recently from Syria, were happy enough to collect their taxes and leave the Jews mostly in charge of their own affairs. But then, fighting among Jewish factions began. Some, the Hellenizers, were only too happy to assimilate themselves with the larger Greek culture. They exercised in the Greek gymnasiums. Some of them even removed the signs of their circumcisions so as to blend in when they worked out in the nude they also largely ignored the ancient laws concerning what Jews could and could not eat. The tensions between these Hellenized Jews and those who had clung to the ancient practices had always been tense. But they had been exacerbated more recently by a fight over who would be the high priest in Jerusalem. Suddenly, it seemed, the Greek king Antiochus in Syria could no longer benevolently ignore what was happening in the province of Judea. He began to meddle, and, in the manner of many a meddling foreign tyrant, he very quickly managed to make a bad situation so much worse. Antiochus seemed to have decided that Jewishness itself was the problem, and so his simplistic solution was just to wipe it all away. He set up altars to the Greek gods throughout the countryside and required the people to make sacrifices. He even renovated the great temple in Jerusalem, to accommodate the worship of these foreign gods. He banned the practice of circumcision that was so essential to the Jewish identity and actually created a requirement that people must eat unclean foods like the flesh of pigs. And so now, people like Shmuni were fighting against two enemies. They were fighting against Hellenized Jews in their midst and against the Greek officials who were forcing Hellenization down their throats, literally in some cases. And so tensions were very high. But still Shmuni and her family were trying to do their best to quietly live out their lives according to their traditions, and as their conscience demanded. When she had lost her husband to sickness several years earlier, that had been hard. But she had seven fine sons to take care of, and so she had stepped up to be the leader her sons needed. The experience had taught her to be tough, and had strengthened her faith in the God that she had turned to in her darkest times. Her sons adored her for all that she had done for them. All they really wanted was to be left alone and allowed to live their lives as they chose. But that, it seemed, was not to be... They had been denounced. That hurt the most. It was one thing for them to know that some of their neighbors had embraced the Greek practices, but to think that one of them had been willing to sell out Shmuni and her boys for some paltry reward, that was disgusting. It seemed that the king himself was passing through the region. He wanted to see how his new policies were being enforced. And, of course, all of the local Greek officials and their collaborators were only too keen to impress him. The eight family members were brought forward and forced to prostrate themselves before Antiochus, who, blasphemously claimed to be the very manifestation of God. They were compelled with whips and straps to step forward and to do something that was so simple and yet so objectionable to them. Small servings of smoked pork had been cut and laid in plates in front of the king. All they had to do they were told, was take but a small bite, and the king would forgive them for their foolish defiance. But Shmuni's eldest son, her beautiful and strong tall boy, stepped forward and spoke directly to the king with defiance. What do you expect us to do, O king? We already know what we must do, for we are ready to die rather than transgress the laws of our ancestors. At this the king flew into a rage. He ordered that the great fires that had been prepared be lit, and that huge pans and cauldrons be brought forward and set upon the fires. He thought, that the mere sight of such a terrible thing would strike fear into the hearts of Shmuni's family. But he underestimated the courage that was in her and that she had inspired among her sons. Once the vessels were scalding hot, the king first ordered that the tongue of the sun who had dared to speak his defiance, should be cut out. The torturer stepped forward and gleefully ordered the slaves to force the man's mouth open. The tongue was seized with tongs and, with the aid of a blade, quickly excised the offending lump of flesh was tossed into the nearest pan where it sizzled. The sight of the beloved son and brother being so mutilated was a shock to the entire family, and it rendered them quite speechless. They had not believed that all of this could come to such a horrible outcome. Did they not have a God who was a God of justice, who would not stand for such an outrage, especially when his people were only seeking to live as they had been taught? That sense of shock only deepened, paralyzing them as they watched the torturers, upon the order of the king, cut the scalp from the top of the young man's head, and then lop off his hands and his feet, carrying all of these to the fire. It was only when the pitiable remains of the sun, still moving and flailing in agony, were taken and thrown into the scalding pan, and he gave one last inarticulate cry that their tongues were finally loosed. But they did not speak as the king had hoped. They did not clamor to ask for his forgiveness, nor had the gruesomeness of what they had witnessed prompt them to step forward and eat the pork as they had been ordered. No. They only spoke to one another in wonderment. For they did not understand how it could be that their God could have permitted such a horrible thing to happen. And so they clung to the one thing that they did know. The Lord God is watching over us and in truth has compassion on us, declared Shmuni. So did Moses declare, and that is the truth that stands against anything that this king might say. Her second son looked at her thoughtfully as the torturers came and took him to stand before the king. the second son was quickly scalped at the word of the king, and then the ruler looked at him in a strange parody of conciliation, as if he regretted having to order such monstrosities. In a pleading tone, he began to beg this brother to simply relent and consent to eat but a morsel of the unclean flesh that lay there tantalizingly on the plate. But this brother, who had always been the quietest of all of them, barely even bothered to respond to the king for all his pleading. He offered up one word only, a simple no, was all that he managed. And he didn't even offer that in the king's Greek language. He spoke most disrespectfully in the vulgar Aramaic of the region. Well, as you can imagine, this enraged the king yet more. And he immediately ordered that the same mutilations be performed on this man as had been done to his elder brother and this was all carried out. Except, since this brother seemed so uninterested in speech, the king didn't bother to order his tongue cut out. He seemed to have little fear of what such a one might say. But in that, the king was sorely mistaken. This brother remained silent, barely even crying out as his limbs were severed. But as the remains of his torso were finally being carried to the pan, he finally found something that was worth saying. "'You accursed wretch!' he cried, "'because after all, "'what more could the king do to him now? "'You dismiss us from this present life, "'but the king of the universe "'will raise us up "'to a renewal of everlasting life, "'because we have died for his laws.'" His mother and his brothers had been studiously looking away, not wanting to witness his final agony. But when they heard what he said, they all turned to him. For he had not been speaking for the king, but truly for their sakes. He was letting them know that he had figured out how it was possible. The only way that it could be true that their God's compassion for his people would never fail, while an evil king was putting that same people so horribly to death, was if God intended to raise them up again in an entirely renewed life. It was so obvious. And so, the second son went to his death, with at least a sense of consolation. The third son soon followed, and after what he had just seen, he did not wait for the king to ask him to eat the pork nor did he even wait for the king to threaten him with any punishments. He put out his tongue and stretched out his hands towards the king, saying, I got these from heaven, and because of God's laws, I despise them. Take them, O king, because I hope to get them back again from heaven. He had absorbed his brother's lesson And more, you see. If God truly cared for his people and would raise them up, then surely God would have to give back to those people the very things that the king had so cruelly robbed them of. Any raising that God did would necessarily involve raising the whole body, including whatever bits the king had chopped off. Even if hands and feet and tongues had been fried up in the pan, God would have to restore them. It was the only way to make sense of God's faithfulness in this present orgy of mutilation and slaughter. How would God restore those parts? Well that wasn't quite something that he had worked out yet and judging from the shade of red that the king's face was turning he would never have the time to work it out but that hardly mattered in the moment he went to his death with peace in his heart Mooney watched that afternoon, as one by one, her sons were sacrificed to the evil king's rage. They all spoke bravely. They all acted as if their hands and feet, and whatever other parts the king had the impulse to take from them, were of no value to them at all. And she knew, she understood that they were all looking to her and how she had borne up in the face of her adversity to inspire their courage. How could she not have had mixed feelings about all of that? She was horrified, as any mother would be, to see the family that she had given everything for slowly being wiped out before her very eyes. How awful to realize that she was the inspiration for their actions. And yet, at the same time, she could not help but admire the fortitude that she was seeing in her sons. She was, above all, impressed by their wisdom. All her life, she had been the one who had sought to teach them about the God of their ancestors and how that God would remain faithful to his covenant. But here, they were teaching her about the true nature of that faithfulness. She had never thought beyond this present life in order to understand how God would remain faithful to the people. What had been the need for that? All the people of Israel needed was to be able to live according to their own laws and peacefully in their own land. But now, this king had brought them to a place they needed to think differently. He was torturing their bodies by taking parts of their bodies from them, bit by bit. So, if bodily destruction was the approach of the evil king, and if God was going to remain faithful to the promises of the covenant, clearly the only way to do that was to create a bodily restoration on the other side of death. It made perfect sense, at least under the circumstances. Any fulfillment of God's promises meant that there had to be a bodily existence beyond this present world. They had to get back the body parts. They were sacrificing. These were the things that her son had taught her in their courage. But there was one question that yet remained, a question that none of her progeny had had time to puzzle through. Shmuni was powerless to do anything but watch this terrible slaughter but her mind did not cease to reel as she tried to make sense of what was happening. These were not strangers that were dying in front of her, after all. They were the people she loved most in the world. They were people that she knew and loved even before they were born. Her mind inevitably and painfully returned to her memory of how they came into the world. There was one experience in particular, even though she had experienced more than seven times that never got old. It was that experience of feeling the beginnings of new life within her, As each child stirred, she could not help but be amazed and filled with wonder. It was the one big miracle she had ever experienced the miracle of new life. And of course, as a faithful Jew, she gave all credit for this miracle to her Creator. She had never understood it. That was how she knew it was divine. Somehow she knew there had to be a connection between that miracle that she had experienced so many times and the miracle of resurrection that her sons were now anticipating. Six sons had stood before the king, one after another. Each one had died a bloody death, a painful death, in his obstinate refusal. And now, even as the last son stood before him, the king was beginning to realize the horrible position he was in. He could not back down from his demands. Of course, he could not. That would be a fatal blow to his rule and prestige. But it was beginning to dawn on him the horror of what he was about to make happen. He was about to wipe out an entire family. This was an act so cruel that even gods had been shamed for doing such things. So the king began to try everything that he could think of to persuade this final young man. He offered him friendship, rewards, and prosperity. If only he would eat but a small bite of pork! But the young man remained completely unmoved. And so the king turned to the mother. Surely she would do anything to prevent the death of her last son. Surely she would want to persuade her son to give in, and perhaps to her he would listen. And so the king motioned for Shmuni to be brought over to her son so that she could as he put it, talk some sense into him. And the mother agreed to talk to him. She went forward and was glad to have an opportunity to clasp hands with her only remaining son. And then she leaned forward and spoke for his ears alone. My son, she said, have pity on me. I carried you nine months in my womb, and nursed you for three years, and have reared you, and brought you up to this point in your life, and have taken care of you. I beg you, my child, to look at the heaven and the earth and see everything that is in them and recognize that God did not make them out of things that existed. The human race came into being in the same way. Do not fear this butcher, but prove worthy of your brothers, accept death, so that in God's mercy I may get you back again, along with your brothers. The same God that miraculously brought your life into being within me is more than able to create your life, your body, all over again after this king is done with you. And he did, as his mother had said, and he died too, and then the woman died as well. Epilogue, about two centuries later. The Sadducees had heard that this new preacher, a man named Jesus from Nazareth, was gaining a following. And one of the reasons apparently was that he had embraced the popular notion that after people died, God would raise the righteous ones in a great event called the resurrection that would take place at the end of time. The Sadducees had some problems with that. They believed in the scriptures. Of course they did. But they were picky about which ones they trusted in. The ancient books of Moses, there was no question that they were authoritative, but they did not treat the other writings in the same way. Especially much more recent books like, say, the books of the Maccabees, which were written, as far as they were concerned, by a bunch of filthy rebels and usurpers, And here was the thing, all of that stuff about the resurrection, it didn't come up in the books of Moses. It was only really brought up in much later writings like, well, the books of the Maccabees. And they felt that this discredited the whole idea of the resurrection. Today, they had decided to target the teaching of this popular preacher from Galilee. They found him, with little trouble, surrounded by a large group of fans who were hanging on his every word. It was kind of disgusting how these preachers with novel ideas always seemed to be able to draw a crowd. They came right up to him with a challenge. "'Teacher,' they said. "'You know what it says in the books of Moses? "'The law there states that if a man's brother dies, "'leaving a wife but no child, "'the man shall marry the widow "'and raise up children for his brother.' "'Jesus nodded, as did many around him. "'They were all familiar with this provision in the law.' even if it was rarely observed in those chaotic days. It was based on the idea that every Israelite male should leave an heir to inherit the family property. That was why a brother was expected to raise an heir for his dead brother by marrying his widow. Of course, in these days, so many families had lost their family properties to debt and deprivation that such issues rarely arose. But people still knew about the law. In many ways, it was a a reminder of what they had lost. But the Sadducees had a follow-up to this reminder of the ancient law. Now, One of them went on, it happened that there were seven brothers. And once again, everyone immediately knew exactly what they were talking about. In the two centuries following the time of Antiochus, Epiphanes, the story of the seven brothers had only grown in popularity and currency. You had only to mention seven brothers and everyone knew that by the end of the story all of those brothers would be dead. But they also knew that this story was all about the truth of the resurrection and the hope they placed in it. So the Sadducee who was speaking did not need to fill in any details of torture or murder the people filled in those details themselves. They also, no doubt, could see the image of the mother of those brothers as she stood there watching. She was still revered for her great theological insights. But, just when everyone was feeling comfortable with this familiar and beloved story... The Sadducees sprang his rhetorical trap. What you may not know, he said, is that one of those brothers was married and had no son. So, the Sadducees spun their unusual tale. The law of Moses was clear, they explained. One by one, those brothers would have had to marry that same woman. One by one, each of them would have to try and get an heir for his dead brother through her. Now, did they care that the original story they were critiquing really didn't leave any time for marriages? much less failed attempts at procreation to take place? No, that did not bother them one bit, though you could see many puzzled faces among the crowd. But the Sadducees quickly glossed over all of that to rush to their triumphant point. Since a wife was a possession, she could only belong to one man at a time. But if those seven dead brothers were raised, the question of which one of them owned that wife could not be resolved. Therefore, the idea of the resurrection itself was not compatible with the law of Moses. It didn't matter what it said in the books of the Maccabees. There was no resurrection. And so, their absolutely perfect argument having been made, the Sadducees looked expectantly at Jesus while they waited for him to admit that they had outwitted him. Jesus laughed. brutal and repressive policies of King Antiochus Epiphanes sparked a revolt against his rule. That revolt was particularly led by a family called the Hasmoneans, and was eventually successful in expelling the foreign rulers. As a result of their successes, the Hasmoneans seized control of the government with members of their family, attaining both the office of high priest and king. As happens with any new dynasty, especially one that has weak ties with former dynasties, they had a great need to prove to the people that they were legitimate rulers. To that end, they employed one of the oldest tricks in the book they wrote a book. The books of the Maccabees were produced by the Hasmonean family. Maccabee was a nickname for one of their most illustrious members. On the surface, these books are provided as a history of the revolt. But the real purpose of the books is transparent. They were written to justify the revolt and legitimize Hasmonean rule and it is in that context that we must understand the story of the mother and the seven brothers it is a perfect story of the horrors of Greek foreign rule in fact it is so perfect that you kind of have to assume that it is propaganda It is just a little bit too convenient that an entire family is all wiped out at once, that the brutality and torture are so extreme, and that the king himself should be inexplicably present to witness it all and egg the torturers on. It is not... Too hard to come to the conclusion that the story is exaggerated for effect. And yet, even if the story is a little too perfect, there must be a genuine kernel of truth behind it. It does seem to be true that the popular belief in the idea of resurrection stems from that period in Israel's history. It is at that point that the belief that God's faithfulness to God's people was such that their bodies would be raised up to new life even if they were destroyed by their enemies. It just makes sense to me that the popularity of such a belief at such a time probably had something to do with the bodily tortures that they were being subjected to. So, even if there is some propagandistic exaggeration going on, there is something about the story of the seven brothers and their mother that rings true. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. And do leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ada by Kevin McLeod. And the mood music for this episode is "World of War" by Sasha End. It is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.io. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. I'd also like to invite you to consider supporting my work at patreon.com retellingthebible. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.